I'm writing this under appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug, which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think for my slavery to morphine that I am weakling or degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, but never fully realize why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize. Whilst we of her crew were treated with all fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners, so liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself to drift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess, vaguely by the sun and stars, that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some uninhabitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair my solitude upon hearing vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know. My slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I was awakened, it was to discover myself, half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations, as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. But one might well imagine that my first sensation would be a wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation. Of scenery I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish, and of other less describable things, which I saw protruded from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight, save a vast reach of black slime, yet the very completeness of the stillness and homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under the unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me, I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might, nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling. Purposes in a short time that night, I slept but little. The next day, I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning, I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight and evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily east-westward, guided by a far hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day was still traveled toward the hummock. Though the object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it, by the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance. Intervening valley, setting it out sharp from leaf, the general surface. Too wary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, 
but ere the warning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, now I felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side in an immeasurable pit of or canyon, whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to loom. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through the terror ran reminiscent of paradise lost, and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easily footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual, urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze. I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler, gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once, my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with a sensation I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss, had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith, whose massive bulk known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions and almost slapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphs unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fish, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things, which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I'd observed on an ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carvings, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water, on account of their enormous size, were an array of boss relief, whose subject could have excited the envy of a door. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage to some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. With their faces and forms, I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a poe or a buller, there was damnably human in the general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other featureless, pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, there seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fish or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished, eras before the ancestors of the pit-downer Neanderthal man was born. 
awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most staring anthropologist. I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then suddenly I saw it, only a slight churning to, its, to mark its rise to the surface. The thing slid into view above the dark waters, vast, polyphemous, and loathsome, and darted with a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad, then, of my frantic ascent of the sloping cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remembered little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I had indistinct recollections of a great storm, some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of those shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of an American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium, I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing. Nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated entomologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine's legend of Dagon, the fish god, but soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug was given only transient surcease. It was drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all, having written a full account of the information. What a contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself, if it could not have all been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man of war. This I ask myself, whatever does there come, before me a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless thing that may at the very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likeness on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind, of a day when the land shall shrink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst a universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find God that hand. The window. The window. The Cats of Ultar by H.P. Lovecraft It is said that in Ultar, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat, and this I can verily believe as I gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire. For the cat is cryptic, and close to strange things which men cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptos, and bearer of tales from forgotten cities in Meroe and Ophir. He is the kin of the jungle's lords and heir to the secrets of hoary and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language, but he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. In Ultar, before ever the Burgesses forbade the killing of cats, there dwelt an old cotter and his wife who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbors. Why they did this I know not, save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night and take it ill that cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But whatever the reason, this old man and woman took pleasure in trapping and slaying every cat which came near to their hovel, and from some of the sounds heard after dark, many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. But the villagers did not discuss such things with the old man and his wife, because of the habitual expression on the withered faces of the two and because their cottage was so small and so darkly hidden under spreading oaks at the back of a neglected yard. In truth, 
Much as the owners of cats hated these odd folk, they feared them more, and instead of berating them as brutal assassins, merely took care that no cherished pet or mouser should stray toward the remote hovel under the dark trees. When through some unavoidable oversight a cat was missed, and sounds heard after dark, the loser would lament impotently, or console himself by thanking fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. For the people of Ultar were simple, and knew not whence it is all cats first came. One day a caravan of strange wanderers from the south entered the narrow cobbled streets of Ultar. Dark wanderers they were, and unlike the other roving folk who passed through the village twice every year. In the marketplace they told fortunes for silver, and bought gay beads from the merchants. What was the land of these wanderers none could tell, but it was seen that they were given to strange prayers and that they had painted on the sides of their wagons strange figures with human bodies and the heads of cats, hawks, rams and lions. And the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the horns. There was in this singular caravan a little boy with no father or mother, but only a tiny black kitten to cherish. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him this small furry thing to mitigate his sorrow, and when one is very young, one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. So the boy whom the dark people called Meanies smiled more often than he wept as he sat playing with his graceful kitten on the steps of an oddly painted wagon. On the third morning of the wanderer's stay in Ultar, Meanies could not find his kitten, and as he sobbed aloud in the marketplace certain villagers told him of the old man and his wife and of sounds heard in the night. And when he heard these things his sobbing gave place to meditation, and finally to prayer. He stretched out his arms toward the sun and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand, though indeed the villagers did not try very hard to understand, since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky and the odd shapes the clouds were assuming. It was very peculiar, but as the little boy uttered his petition there seemed to form overhead the shadowy, nebulous figures of exotic things, of hybrid creatures crowned with horn-flanked discs. Nature is full of such illusions to impress the imaginative. That night the wanderers left Ultar, and were never seen again. And the householders were troubled when they noticed that in all the village there was not a cat to be found. From each hearth the familiar cat had vanished, cats large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow and white. Old Grinnan, the burgomaster, swore that the dark folk had taken the cats away in revenge for the killing of Minnie's kitten, and cursed the caravan and the little boy. But Nith, the lean notary, declared that the old cotter and his wife were more likely persons to suspect, for their hatred of cats was notorious and increasingly bold. Still, no one durst complain to the sinister couple, even when little Atal, the innkeeper's son, vowed that he had at twilight seen all the cats of Ultar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, to abreast, as if in performance of some unheard of rite of beasts. The villagers did not know how much to believe from so small a boy, and though they feared that the evil pair had charmed the cats to their death, they preferred not to chide the old cotter till they met him outside his dark and repellent yard. So Ultar went to sleep in vain anger, and when the people awakened at dawn polled, every cat was back at his accustomed hearth. Large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow and white, none was missing. Very sleek and fat did the cats appear, 
and sonorous with purring content. The citizens talked with one another of the affair, and marveled not a little. Old Grinnan again insisted that it was the dark folk who had taken them, since cats did not return alive from the cottage of the ancient man and his wife. But all agreed on one thing, that the refusal of all the cats to eat their portions of meat or drink their saucers of milk was exceedingly curious. And for two whole days this week, lazy cats of Ultara would touch no food, but only doze by the fire or in the sun. It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk in the windows of the cottage under the trees. Then Aline Nith remarked that no one had seen the old man or his wife since the night the cats were away. In another week the burgomaster decided to overcome his fears and call it the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty though in so doing he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith and Thal the cutter of stone as witnesses. And when they had broken down the frail door they found only this, two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor, and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. There was subsequently much talk among the burgesses of Ultar. Zath, the coroner, disputed at length with Nith, the lean notary and Grinan and Shang and Thal were overwhelmed with questions. Even little Atal, the innkeeper's son, was closely questioned and given a sweetmeat as reward. They talked of the old cotter and his wife, of the caravan of dark wanderers, of small Meanies and his black kitten, of the prayer of Meanies and of the sky during that prayer, of the doings of the cats on the night the caravan left and of what was later found in the cottage under the dark trees in the repellent yard. And in the end the Burgesses passed that remarkable law which is told of by traders in Hathag and discussed by travelers in Nier, namely, that in Ultar no man may kill a cat. The History of the Necronomicon by H.P. Lovecraft Original title, Al-Azif Al-Azif being the word used by Arabs to designate the nocturnal sound made by insects supposed to be the howling of demon, composed by Abdul al-Hazred, a mad poet of Sana'a in Yemen, who is said to have flourished during the period of the Omeyyad Caliphs circa 700 AD. He visited the ruins of Babylon and the subterranean secrets of Memphis and spent ten years alone in the great southern desert of Arabia, the Roba al khaliya or empty space of the ancients, and the Donna, or crimson desert of the modern Arabs, which is held to be inhabited by protective evil spirits and monsters of death. Of this desert many strange and unbelievable marvels are told by those who to have penetrated it. In his last years, Al-Hazred dwelt in Damascus, where the Necronomicon was written, and of his final death or disappearance, 738 AD, many terrible and conflicting things are told. He is said by Ibn Khalqan, 12th century biographer, to have been seized by an evil monster in broad daylight, and devoured horribly before a large number of fright-frozen witnesses. Of this madness many things are told. He claimed to have seen fabulous Erim, or City of Pillars, and to have found beneath the ruins of a certain nameless desert town the shocking annals and the secrets of a race older than mankind. He was only an indifferent Muslim, worshipping unknown deities, who he called Yog shagoth and Cthulhu. In AD 950, the Azif, which had gained a considerable though surreptitious circulation amongst the philosophers of the age, was secretly translated into Greek by Theodorus Philateus or Constantinople, 
under the title Necronomicon. For a century it impelled certain experimenters to terrible attempts when it was suppressed and burnt by the patriarch Michael. After this it is only heard of furtively, but 1228 Olaus Bormius made a Latin translation later in the Middle Ages, and the Latin text was printed twice, once in the 15th century in black letter, evidently in German, and once in the 17th, probably Spanish, both editions being without identifying marks and located as the time and place by internal typographical evidence. Only the work, both Latin and Greek, was banned by Pope Gregory VI in 1232, shortly after its Latin translation, which called its attention to it. The Arabic original was lost as early as Wormius' time, as indicated by his prefatory note and no sight of the Greek copy was printed in Italy between 1500 and 1550, has been reported since the burning of a certain Salem man's library in 1692. An English translation, made by Dr. D, was never printed, and exists only in fragments, recovered from the original manuscript of the Latin text now existing. One, 15th century, is known to be in the British Museum, under lock and key, while another, 17th century, is in the Bibliothèque Nationale at Paris. A 17th century edition is in the Widener Library at Harvard, and in the Library of Miskatonic University at Arkham, also in the Library of the University Buenos Aires. Numerous other copies probably exist in secret, and a 15th century one is persistently rumored to form part of the collection of a certain American millionaire. A still vaguer rumor credits the preservation of a 16th century Greek text in the Salem family of Pickman. But if it was so preserved, it vanished with the artist R.U. Pickman, who disappeared early in 1926. The book is rigidly suppressed by the authorities of most countries and by all branches of organized ecclesiasticism. Reading leads to terrible consequences. It was from rumors of this book of which rel relatively few of the general public know that R.W. Changers is said to have derived the idea of his early novel, The King in Yellow. I repeat to you, gentlemen, that your inquisition is fruitless. Detain me here forever, if you will. Confine or execute me if you must. Have a victim to procreate the illusion you call justice. But I can say no more than I have said already. Everything that I can remember, I have told with perfect candor. Nothing has been distorted or concealed, and if anything remains vague, it is only because of the dark cloud which has come over my mind, that cloud and the nebulous nature of the horrors which brought it upon me. Again I say, I do not know what has become of Harley Warren, though I think, almost hope, that he is in peaceful oblivion. If there be anywhere so blessed a thing, it is true that I have for five years been his close friend and a partial sharer of his terrible researches into the unknown. I will not deny, though my memory is uncertain and indistinct, that this witness of yours may have seen us together as he says, on the Gainesville Pike, walking toward the big cypress swamp at half-past eleven on that awful night, that we bore electric lanterns, spades, and a curious coil of wire with attached instrument, I will even affirm, for these things all played a part in the single hideous scene remains burned in my shaken recollection but of what followed and of the reason i was found alone and dazed on the edge of the swamp next morning i must insist that i know nothing save what i have told you over and over again you say to me that there is nothing in the swamp or near it which could form the setting of that frightful episode i reply that i know nothing beyond what i saw vision or nightmare it may have been 
vision or nightmare, I fervently hope it was, yet it is all that my mind retains of what took place in those shocking hours after we left the sight of men, and why Harley Warren did not return. He or his shade or some nameless thing I cannot describe, alone can tell. As I have said before, the weird studies of Harley Warren were well known to me, and to some extent shared by me, of his vast collection of strange, rare books on forbidden subjects. I have read all that are written in the languages of which I am master, but there are few as compared with those in languages I cannot understand. Most, I believe, are in Arabic, and the fiend-inspired book which brought on the end, the book which he carried in his pocket, out of the world, was written in characters whose like I never saw elsewhere. Warren would never tell me just what was in that book. As to the nature of our studies, must I say again that I no longer retain full comprehension. It seems to me rather merciful that I do not, before they were terrible studies which I pursued more through reluctant fascination than through actual inclination. Warren almost dominated me, and sometimes I feared him. I remember how I shuddered at his facial expression on the night before the awful happening, when he talked so incessantly of his theory why certain corpses never decay, but rest firm and fat in their tombs for a thousand years. But I do not fear him now, for I suspect these known horrors are beyond my ken. Now I fear for him. Once more I say that I have no clear idea of our object on that night. Certainly it had much to do with something in the book which Warren carried with him, that ancient book in undecipherable character which had come to him from India a month before. But I swear I do not know what it was that we expected to find. Your witness says he saw us at half past eleven on the Gainesville Pike, headed for Big Cypress Swamp. This is probably true, but I have no distinct memory of it. The picture seared into my soul is of one scene only, and the hour must have been long after midnight, for a waning crescent moon was high in the vaporous heaven. The place was an ancient cemetery, so ancient that I trembled at the manifold signs of an immemorial year. It was in deep, damp hollow, overgrown with rank grass, moss, and curious creeping weeds, and filled with a vague stench, which my idle fancy associated absurdly with rotting stone. On every hand were the signs of neglect and decrepitude, and I seemed haunted by the notion that Warren and I were the first living creature to invade a lethal silence of centuries. Over the valley's rim, wan, waning crescent moon peered through the noisome vapor that seemed to emanate from the unheard-of catacomb, and by its feeble, wavering beam, I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slabs, urns, cenotaphs, and mausolean facades, all crumbling, moss-grown, and moisture-stained, and partly concealed by the gross luxuriance of the unhealthy vegetation. My first vivid impression of my own presence in this terrible necropolis concerns the act of pausing with Warren before a certain half-obliterated sepulchre, and of throwing down some burdens which we seemed to have been carrying. I now observed that I had with me an electric lantern and two spades, whilst my companion was supplied with a similar lantern and a portable telephone outfit. No word was uttered, for the spot and the task seemed known to us, and without delay we seized our spades and commenced to clear away the grass, weeds, and drifted earth from the flat, archaic mortuary. After uncovering the entire surface, which consisted of three immense granite slabs, we stepped back some distance to survey the charnel scene, and Warren appeared to make some mental calculations. Then he returned to the sepulchre, 
and using his spade as a lever, sought to pry up the slab lying nearest the stony ruin, which may have been a monument in its day. He did not succeed, and motioned me to come to his assistance. Finally, our combined strength loosened the stone, which we raised and tipped to one side. The removal of the slab revealed a black aperture, from which rushed an effluence of miasmal gases so nauseous that we started back in horror. After an interval, however, we approached the pit again, and found the exhalations less unbearable. Our lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone steps, dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth, and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitre. And now, for the first time, my memory records verbal discourse, Warren addressing me at length in his mellow tenor voice, a voice singularly unperturbed by our awesome surroundings. I'm sorry to have to ask you to stay on the surface, he said but it would be a crime to let anyone with your frail nerves go down there. You can't imagine, even from what you have read, and from what I've told you, the things I shall have to see and do. It's fiendish work, Carter, and I doubt if any man without ironclad sensibilities could ever see it through and come up alive and sane. I don't wish to offend you, and heaven knows I'd be glad enough to have you with me. But the responsibility is in a certain sense mine, and I couldn't drag a bundle of nerves like you down to probable death or madness. I tell you, you can't imagine what the thing is really like, but I promise to keep you informed over the telephone of every move. You see, I've enough wire here to reach the center of the earth and back. I can still hear, in my memory, those coolly spoken words. And I can still remember my, my remonstrance. I seemed desperately anxious to accompany my friend into these sepulchral depths. Yet he proved inflexibly obdurate. At one time, he threatened to abandon the expedition if I remained insistent. A threat which proved effective, since he alone held the key to the thing. All of this I can still remember, though I no longer know what manner of thing we sought. After he had secured my reluctant acquiescence in his design, Warren picked up the reel of wire and adjusted the instrument. At his nod, I took one of the latter and seated myself upon an aged, discolored gravestone, close by the newly uncovered aperture. Then he shook my hand, shouldered the coil of wire, and disappeared within the indescribable ossuary. For a moment, I kept sight of the glow of his lantern, and I heard the rustle of the wire as he laid it down after but the glow soon disappeared abruptly, as if a turn in the stone staircase had been encountered, and the sound died away almost as quickly. I was alone, yet bound to the unknown depths by those magic strands, whose insulated surface lay green beneath the struggling beams of that waning crescent moon. In the lone silence of that hoary and deserted city of the dead, my mind conceived the most ghastly fantasies and delusions, and the grotesque shrines and monoliths seemed to assume a hideous personality, a half-sentient, amorphous shadow seemed to lurk in the darker recesses of the weed-choked hollow, and to flit as in some blasphemous ceremonial procession past the portals of the moldering tombs in the hillside, shadows which could not have been cast by the pallid, peering crescent moon. I constantly consulted my watch by the light of my electric lantern, and listened with feverish anxiety at the receiver of the telephone, but for more than a quarter of an hour heard nothing. Then a faint clicking came from the instrument, and I called down to my friend, in a tense voice. Apprehensive as I was, I was nevertheless unprepared for the words which came up from the uncanny vaults, in accents more alarmed and quivering 
than any I had heard before from Harley Warren, he who had so calmly left me a little while previously, now called from below in a shaky whisper, more pretentious than the loudest shriek. God, if you could see what I am seeing. I could not answer, speechless. I could only wait. Then came the frenzied tone again. Carter, it's terrible, monstrous, unbelievable. This time my voice did not fail me, and I poured into the transmitter a flood of excited questions. Terrified, I continued to speak to Warren. What is it? What is it? Once more came the voice of my friend, still hoarse with fear, and now apparently tinged with despair. I can't tell you, Carter. It's too utterly beyond thought. I dare not tell you. No man could know it and live. Great God, I never dreamed of this. Stillness again, save for my now incoherent torrent of shuddering inquiry. Then the voice of Warren in a pitch of a wilder consternation. Carter, for the love of God, put back the slab and get out of this if you can. Quick, leave everything else and make for the outside. It's your only chance. Do as I say, and don't ask me to explain. I heard. It was able only to repeat my frantic questions. Around me were the tombs and the darkness and the shadows. Below me some peril, beyond the radius of the human imagination. But my friend was in greater danger than I, and through my fear I felt a vague resentment that he should deem me capable of deserting him under such circumstances. More clicking, and after a pause a piteous cry from Morn. Beat it for God's sake. Put back the slab and beat it, Carter. Something in the boyish slang of my evidently stricken companion unleashed my faculty. I formed and shouted a resolution. Warren, brace up. I'm coming down. But at this offer, the tone of my auditor changed to a scream of utter despair. Don't. You can't understand. It's too late. And my own fault. Put back the slab and run. There's nothing else you or anyone can do. The tone changed again this time acquiring a softer quality as of hopeless resignation, yet it remained tense through anxiety for me. Quick, before it's too late, I tried not to heed him, tried to break through the paralysis which held me, and to fulfill my vow to rush down to his aid. But his next whisper found me still held inert in the chains of stark horror. Carter, hurry. It's no use. You must go. Better one than two. The slab. A pause more clicking than the fervent voice of Warren. Nearly over now. Don't make it harder. Cover up those damn steps and run for your life. You're losing time. So long, Carter. Won't see you again. Here, Warren's whisper swelled into a cry. A cry that gradually rose to a shriek, fraught with all the horror of the ages. Curse these hellish things. Legions, my God. Beat it. Beat it. Beat it. After that was silence. I know not how many interminable aeons I sat stupefied, whispering, muttering calling, screaming into that telephone, over and over again through those aeons. I whispered and muttered, called and shouted and screamed, Warren, Warren, answer me, are you there? And then there came to me the crowning horror of all, the unbelievable, unthinkable, almost unmentionable thing. I have said that aeons seemed to elapse after Warren shrieked forth his last despairing warning, and that only my own cries now broke the hideous silence. But after a while, there was further clicking in the receiver, and I strained my ears to listen. Again I called down, Warren, are you there? And in answer, heard the thing which has brought this cloud over my mind. I do not try, gentlemen, to account for that thing, that voice, nor can I venture to describe it in detail, since the first words took away my consciousness and created a mental blank which reaches at the time of my awakening in the hospital. Shall I say that the voice was deep, hollow, gelatinous, remote, unearthly, inhuman, disembodied, 
what shall I say? It was the end of my experience, and is the end of my story. I heard it and knew no more. Heard as I sat petrified in the unknown cemetery, in the hollow amidst the crumbling stones, and the falling tombs, the rank vegetation, and the miasmal vapors. Heard it well up from the innermost depths of the damnable open sepulchral, as I watched amorphous necrophagous shadows danced beneath an accursed waning moon. And this is what I said, you fool, Warren is dead.